From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. You need to have someone who you can trust to ask questions of. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I didn't cry when I buried my mom because I didn't want my father to fall apart. Now, in the past, we used to organize each ReSound around a theme. Now, we just share stories we love without worrying about whether they all touch on similar topics. But then, when we started organizing today's show, we noticed that the stories we curated seemed to naturally have some common denominators. Family ties, love, loss, and moms. I guess you could say that every tale ever written has something to do with at least one of those themes, but let's not get grandiose. Let's just listen and enjoy these beautiful stories. You may want some Kleenex nearby. Just saying. Producer Leela Day has been carrying a burden of guilt around for a decade. Ten years of wondering if she said the wrong thing at the worst possible time. And so she wants to go back, back to the moment it happened, that thing that has been gnawing at her for so long. But to do that, she needs help from her sister. Here is The Birth of Solomon. Granola and pecans and coffee. When my sister Allison gets nervous, she kind of sounds like a robot. And eggs and sausage. Her voice gets deep and she talks lower. What are you going to have for dinner? Mexican food. This is from an interview I did with her earlier this year. I ask her what she wants to eat after we finish this interview because I can tell she's uptight and I just want to warm her up. Enchiladas with rice and beans and chips and salsa. Allison and I are 18 months apart. Can you just just say my name is? My name is Allison Day. She's older than me. Can you do it again? My name is Allison Day. She's tall and has a short afro that I'm always trying to make little adjustments to. We're close. Real close. Can you do it again? My name is Allison Day. I really don't need to ask her to say her name this many times, but I can tell it's annoying her, and this is the kind of thing that we do to each other. Again. My name is Allison Day. A few months ago, she read something, and she hasn't been able to shake it. I'm just trying to find this thing. Okay. Black women are three to four times as likely than white women to die of pregnancy-related causes. A black baby born today is twice as likely as a white baby born the same day in the same California city to perish before she can take her first steps or experience her first birthday party. These are statistics that relate to the entire country, not just California. They're numbers that neither of us have been able to forget. My sister, because she's lived part of this statistic, and me, because there's some guilt, some things we haven't talked about. I've been holding on to this stuff for more than 10 years. We never saw Solomon open his eyes. That was his name. He was named after Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. 
He had milk chocolatey skin and curly black locks that made you want to instantly run your fingers through. But I didn't. I never did. I remember very clearly a circle of people surrounding my sister's hospital bed. Machines were beeping, family, nurses, random people in hospital scrubs, all of us just sort of lingering around. A nurse wheeled Solomon in, in one of those clear plastic hospital bassinets, right next to my sister. Allison looked at him and smiled. You know that smile that new moms wear so perfectly? That smile that says, you're beautiful, you're precious, you are absolutely everything I live for kind of smile? I'd seen it before. It's the same way my sister smiles at her firstborn daughter. It's a mom thing. More nurses followed. The room was now full of nurses in pink, some of them crying. And I remember being annoyed that they were crying, thinking they need to pull their shit together for Allison's sake. Do you want to hold him? A nurse asked. And my sister paused. She was still smiling. Should I? She asked. Kind of like she was talking to herself, like asking the question into the air. Then she glanced to her right where I was standing, and she looked straight at me. My hand slipped over my mouth, not believing what was happening. I found myself shaking my head. No, this is all too painful. My sister looked back over at Solomon and told the nurse that she didn't want to hold him. Solomon was born unresponsive. He'd been taken off life support in order to be wheeled down to my sister. She touched his foot, and then they wheeled him back upstairs. Moments later, he died. My sister will always carry that grief. And me, the guilt that my reaction may have been the reason why she never held her son. Do you remember, like, later in the pregnancy, like, how you were feeling? The second pregnancy seemed to be going well for the most part. Her belly was huge. Towards the end of the pregnancy, I started calling her Darth Vader. Well, all pregnant people have issues breathing. Your lungs are compressed. (laughs) I know. I was really, I I just remember that you just seemed really ready. Yeah, my belly was sticking out in a way that was weird compared to the first one. It was really like the baby was standing up inside of me. Yeah, it looked like the baby had been in there like 14 months. During the pregnancy, she'd been complaining about these sharp pains that I told my doctor about. But because I had had fibroids in my first pregnancy that also caused some pain, uh, they were dismissed as just a result of the fibroids. I never had any uh, ultrasound to see what it was. And only in hindsight did I realize that the sharp pain was the same pain I had 
the day that I went to the hospital. That day, Allison was at home with her partner. She thought she was going into labor, but... It was weird. I didn't feel anything, any movement. That's when I called my doctor and said that I had this sharp pain. I drank some orange juice to see if I could get any, like, movement. Her first child had been born via emergency C-section. This time around, she was told she could try for a vaginal birth if she wanted to. And she did want to try. Even though she was having these pains, she thought they were labor pains. And because she'd been watching all these birthing videos of women saying, don't go to the hospital too soon, she got into the bathtub and gritted her teeth through it. The statistic sticks with you. Black women are four times more likely to die at childbirth when compared to white women. And black babies are twice as likely to die as well. It was something I'd read in 2015 when the research went public. This was more than 10 years after Solomon. But at the time, I'd never talked to Allison about it. I just started trying to understand why. So I met with Monica McLemore, a registered nurse and clinician scientist who studies reproductive health. The reproductive outcomes of black women, having a baby, trying to get pregnant, trying to end a pregnancy, we have poor health outcomes. And so, so you're talking about all, in all of those I'm areas. talking about all across the reproductive spectrum are worse. And that statistic of black women being four times more likely to die during childbirth is true. And childbirth is not uh, without risk. However, it is at increased risk for women of color. Research has shown five main causes for this increased risk for death for Black women during childbirth. There's preeclampsia, a complication caused by high blood pressure, and then eclampsia, which is the result of preeclampsia and causes seizures during pregnancy. The same healthcare-related disparities that we see in cardiovascular disease or in diabetes, as you can imagine, those are exacerbated for Black women during pregnancy. Basically, those things that Black women might be at risk for, the risk becomes much higher when they're pregnant. There's also postpartum hemorrhage, losing massive amounts of blood after childbirth. Placenta previa. It's when the placenta partially covers the cervix. And placental abruption, which is what my sister had. This is when the placenta partially or even completely separates from the inner wall of the uterus. It happens to only 1% of pregnant women, but it can be detected early if doctors order fetal monitoring or extra ultrasounds. But this is the thing. It's not that black women have more complications than white women. It's that they're more likely to die from them. Now, I don't know nothing about birth and babies in a literal sense. I mean, I've never had one. But I've been researching a lot about women that do know. And if there's one thing that keeps coming up with doctors and nurses and midwives, it's that the more relaxed you are during labor, the less complicated your childbirth will be. The uterus is one huge muscle. If it's holding on to tension, that baby's going to have a hard time coming out. And Black women report feeling tense in medical settings. A lot of their stories are about feeling disrespected, or even threatened in the delivery room. 
The largest piece that I've heard from black women and women of color is the use and or threat of child protective services, of CPS, in terms of when women of color want to either refuse certain interventions, um, particularly the augmentation of labor or being induced with medications, um, but people are trying to rush them and to speed them along, and that there's there have been threats of, you know, we are not being a good mother or we need to get our baby out. And, and everything's progressing normally. And so there has been the overuse of cesarean section with women of color. Part of that is confounded by, again, other health care related disparities. So there are medically indicated reasons for cesarean section. Let's be clear. However, there are disproportionate numbers of black women who receive those cesarean that are not necessarily medically indicated. When my sister Allison got to the hospital, they hooked her up to a fetal heart rate monitor. She remembers the look on the nurse's face. This questioning look on her face, like this uncertainty. And I was asking her about the heartbeat, and she wasn't answering me. She was just kind of looking at me, and I asked her again. And then the doctor, she brought the doctor in, and the doctor said, we're going to operate right away. Everything happened really fast. She had a C-section, an emergency one, like she did for her first daughter. And Solomon was born. He was alive, but he wasn't moving. And he wasn't responding to stimulation. He was rushed to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. A few hours after he was born, I arrived at the hospital and went to Allison's hospital bed. Her partner was upstairs in the NICU with Solomon, Allison was supposed to be recovering from surgery, but then she whispered to me that she was bleeding. And I remember the concern, the look of real concern on the doctor's faces and them saying, we need to open her back up. They rushed her away, and I stood there alone wondering if that was the last time I'd see her. Allison received the equivalent of nearly three full blood transfusions that day. She went through two back-to-back operations in a course of a few hours. And during that time, doctors and nurses were trying to keep Solomon alive. I saw him more than my sister did, stood by his crib in the NICU. There were moments of beauty that I could have held on to, like how peaceful he looked sleeping, his soft lips, long eyelashes, how his little brown legs looked so chubby and kissable. But the one image that I can't get out of my mind is when they wheeled Solomon into the room after they took him off life support. My sister being asked if she wanted to hold him and then looking towards me for my reaction. I couldn't let it go. As I looked into the research around health risks for black mothers and babies, it was like this web of things that were linked together. Stress had been known to cause issues with childbirth. It's not even debatable. Research has proven this over and over again. But research has also proven that women who experience higher lifetime exposure to chronic stressors, 
like racism or feeling disrespected by your healthcare provider, this can increase their risk for poor pregnancy and birth outcomes. And the stress of feeling disrespected has caused some women to avoid prenatal visits altogether or to not get enough postpartum support. One way that Black mothers in the U.S. have historically been supported was by having a midwife from their own community. In the early 1900s, in the southern parts of the U.S., there were people like Mary Coley. Every time a mother comes to the clinic, they measure her blood pressure. That's another way they can tell if she's keeping in good shape. Or if she ain't, the thing she had better do to get herself well so she can have her baby more easy and normal. She's called a granny midwife, and there used to be thousands of them. Most of them were older women, and to become one, you had to have a spiritual calling. (laughs) I was doing just fine. You can hear Miss Coley here in this film made in the 1950s from the Georgia Department of Public Health. It's called All My Babies. And it was made to teach women about how to have a healthy, safe home birth, which was really common back then. And it was to encourage them to visit a doctor during their pregnancy. What did the doctor say about your case, honey? She ain't seen no doctor. Oh, well, before I can take her case, she'll have to see a doctor. The film shows close-ups of women actually giving birth. Brown, curly heads crowning placentas being wrapped in newspaper and thrown into a fire. It's the real deal. Maybelle, is this your first baby? It's not like I haven't seen babies being born on YouTube at home. But to see black women giving birth at home almost 70 years ago, that blew my mind. Come on, boy, let's get some of that old stuff out you where you can really raise a racket. Help this little old baby you ever saw. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. But having caring midwives still didn't change the fact that Black women were dying. In the 1930s, Southern Black women still had higher mortality rates in comparison to whites and Blacks in the North. Eventually, regulations shut down a lot of practices by granny midwives. And by the 70s, they started phasing out only 3% of births were outside of hospitals. The grannies were seen as an unregulated threat to professionally trained providers. They were called backwards and inept. The message through the South was that it was healthier and not as country to have a baby at a hospital. Two days ago, a baby delivered by a midwife died when it ought to have lived. As your health officer, it was my duty to find out why that baby died. The mostly male, mostly white OBGYNs argued that the way to control the mortality rate was to get pregnant women into hospitals. Everything's red for the baby. Close up it has away. Everything's red for the baby. Learning about these granny midwives, it made me think. What if my sister had had someone by her side guiding her through this? Someone she could talk to about the fears and the pains and the way she didn't feel like her doctor was the right fit? You need to have someone who you can trust to ask questions of um, that has seen birth before and is not afraid of it. That's Linda Jones. She's a doula, 
based in Oakland. I tell people mostly my job is keeping the fear away from the situation because birth in America is very fearful and fear-based. And when you go in there to have a baby and you're afraid, it makes things worse. It takes longer. It hurts more. You end up having lots of interventions that may lead you to a C-section. So what I do is try to prevent all those things from happening if I can. So a doula is like a birth helper. She does a few things. She'll visit a woman throughout her pregnancy. They'll discuss how she's feeling, her concerns, her desires, what type of birth she wants to have. She's often one of the people surrounding you up until you give birth. Linda has helped birth over 1,000 babies. She's Black, and she tells me most of her clients are white. She's seen the need for more women of color to train to be doulas, to have someone there that looks like you. That's why she's made it her mission to train Black doulas. It's sad that a woman has to go and have her baby and she's traumatized by it. And that's true no matter what the woman, but even more so with Black women. You know, I I don't feel you should get PTSD just from having a baby. (laughs) And that's kind of where we are. Even though it can be tense or stressful for many Black women, even just walking into a doctor's office, it's magnified in the intense experience of labor and being at a hospital. Through her work over the years, Linda has had some very candid discussions with people who work in hospitals, especially with the nurses. I say to them, when a black woman walks up to the desk in labor, what preconceived notions do you have about her? And they'll say, oh, I never have any preconceived notions about anyone. I treat everybody the same. And I go, yeah, yeah, I know you probably do. But what about in the cafeteria or the nurse's lounge? Or have you ever heard nurses or doctors talk about what they think about you know, black women in labor? And they go, oh, well, yeah, there is some things. And I go, well, like what? And they say, well, usually they think that she didn't want the baby. She probably doesn't have a partner. She's going to be difficult to deal with. She doesn't know anything about birth. She's probably got diabetes or high blood pressure, so we're going to monitor a lot more. You know, all this because you just walked up to the thing. I mean, they don't know she's a lawyer in excellent health with a partner that's just bringing up the suitcases from the car. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's what they think. And once that's what you go into it with, it just kind of goes downhill from there. For some women, the lack of respect they feel makes them want to take things into their own hands. They might skip prenatal visits or tests or avoid asking a doctor questions. Linda Jones has helped document the birthing stories of over 100 Black women in California. It's through a research project called Black Women's Birthing Justice. Here's a quote read by an actor from a 21-year-old named Rosarian. She had a vaginal birth. Other races be killing themselves over stuff. We're strong people and we're not going to kill ourselves because a man wants to leave us. And we have to raise a kid on our own. We're just really strong, and we get it done. This is another thing that seems so tied into these poor outcomes for Black mothers, which is the strong Black woman syndrome. A behavioral scientist named Jasmine Abrams describes it as a provider and caretaker who is resistant to vulnerability or dependency, displays strength, suppresses emotions, succeeds despite inadequate resources, 
and assumes responsibility as a community agent. Here's another quote from that book, Battling Over Birth. This is a 42-year-old woman named Amina. She had an unplanned C-section. I didn't cry when I buried my mom. I delivered the obituary. I didn't cry because I didn't want my father to fall apart. And I didn't realize I was grieving during my labor. Those of us who tighten up, hold back expressing fear and vulnerability because we're worried about being judged or being called out as weak, this is all so very familiar. I've seen it. I've done it. And maybe my sister has too. Do you blame anyone? I stop blaming people. I do have regrets like that I didn't advocate for myself. I didn't feel comfortable. There were things that came up during my sister's pregnancy, things now in hindsight she regrets not being more firm about. Like she didn't demand an ultrasound when she had pains. She didn't go with her gut when she had an urge to switch doctors. She had a white male doctor recommended by her colleagues, but she felt no connection to him. She actually felt uncomfortable at his office from the beginning. When a tech asked her if the father was involved during an early ultrasound. But she just quietly said yes and wondered to herself, why me? Why that question? I didn't really start to think about it seriously again because so much of it is just trying to put it behind me until I saw these articles and news reports of the discrepancy between black women and white women when it comes to childbirth in this country. And then I started to think, well, what was it about me? Or could there have been something about my case as a black woman that was not, things were not taken as seriously as they should have been? Would a white woman, would she have been taken care of more? Would I have been treated differently? Would I've, would my pain have been taken more seriously? Would my concerns about not feeling movement been taken more seriously? I just don't, I don't know. So there was that one thing I had to ask her about. The guilt that I'd carried for more than 10 years. Do you remember touching him? A little bit. I, don't, I remember mostly not wanting to touch him and not wanting to interact with him. And I regret that in hindsight, which the nurse told me I would. What was the nurse telling you? What did she say? She said that most people regret not holding their baby, even if it's uh, no longer living. I remember thinking, I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to remember the experience that way. You didn't want to remember it by the last memory of, of holding him and not him not being alive? 
I didn't realize the conversation had happened before he came in the room that someone had asked you if you wanted to hold him. But that makes me feel a little bit better, I guess, because um, I remember when that person asked you that, my reaction was like, I know it's too painful. And I, I always kind of wondered if you saw my reaction, which was like, oh, I don't know if I could do that. And I always was like, I wonder if she didn't hold him because of the reaction of like, you know, so I know this isn't about me, but um, no, I don't, I don't remember that. Those are my nieces playing with a robot. The youngest, Tatum, was born two years after Solomon. The girls know about him. They talk about their little brother who died. And they know where their mommy keeps the leaves from his tree. We planted a tree in Prospect Park for him in Brooklyn, New York. And it's a park that was walking distance to our house. A maple tree. And uh, it's still there. What do you do when you go there? Just sit there. Just to see, like, the growth and the changes. And it's a very special place. And every year, she cleans up around the tree. Sits under it, touches it, and collects the fallen leaves. It's a small thing but it's something she can hold on to. The Birth of Solomon was produced by Leela Day for The Stoop, a podcast that brings you stories from across the Black diaspora. Mothering in the best of circumstances can be excruciating. In the worst, unimaginable. Over a lifetime, there are thousands of moments to be treasured, marked, celebrated, or grieved. In our next story, many of those childhood moments are beautifully condensed, from two decades down to two minutes. Not easy to do. Of course, it helps to have a mom who's a radio producer. Here is the being sound. What do you hear out the window? Um, a being sound. Check, check. Well, I think it's hard to believe that was, that, that is me. I'm not even sure if I was aware I was being recorded. I don't know. It's a being sound. Hear that? Yeah, Mom, it does look like they're sort of moving towards the river, see? See that? Do you mind taking off your headphones, maybe? Well, when am I now, 19? Can I just tell you something? I just grew up nine years ago. One, one.
Do you like hearing your voice from when you were little? Um, no. I have a different voice now, which is better. How low does your voice go? Uh, is that low enough? Wait, can you hear me? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I was just listening. Mom, let's, let's need to go for a walk. Okay. Okay. Hear that? Like that outside. Well, should we take loop trail back? Is that what we're on now? Do you want more or what? Yeah, one more. Oh. <laughs> Just one more. Jeez. Bee. Bee. Hear that? The Being Sound by Stephanie Rowden for BBC Radio 4's Shortcuts. In 2016, yet another young unarmed black man was killed by a police officer, this time in Austin, Texas. His story did not make national news, but it will be remembered. At least, that is, if Vanessa Bisrith has anything to do with it. Reporter Audrey McGlinchey spent two years with Vanessa for Give His Voice Back to Him. This story starts with a letter. To the members of this council and all who are present, my name is Vanessa and I am the cousin of David Joseph. Last year, on February 8th, 2016, my cousin was shot to death by an Austin Police Department officer only a short distance from his home. David was in a residential neighborhood in North Austin. It was a little before 10.30 in the morning. David had been naked, unarmed, and experiencing what APD policy refers to as excited delirium. David was muttering to himself, undressing in the street on a cold February day. APD officer Jeffrey Freeman responded to calls of a young man acting strangely. Despite this, my cousin was not treated with care, compassion, or even reasonable judgment. Freeman spotted David in the middle of the road. In the dash cam video, David starts to charge the squad car. Freeman yells at him to stop. Stop right there, man. Stop right there. He was fired upon twice, with one bullet entering his leg and another his chest. Fatally struck, David lay on the ground struggling to breathe. He passed away not long before noon and a little less than three weeks from his 18th birthday. Hey, can you pause it? I met Vanessa last year, just a couple months after Freeman had been fired for violating policy when he shot David. I asked Vanessa if I could follow her in the aftermath of her cousin's death. Over the 18 months we've known each other, I've watched her spend her free time trying to make sense of David's death. And I should note here, David and Vanessa are not related by blood. They grew up together. Their families immigrated from Haiti together. Vanessa considers him a cousin, his mom, her aunt. 
June 2016. Vanessa's 26 years old. I saw a lot of David, but I mean, we didn't really have conversations because he was, he's 17 and I was always older, but always smiling, always kind, always saying hi, always telling me, like telling me what's going on in his life. He's open and honest and kind. Vanessa tells me she wants a mural done of David. She even got a big local artist to agree to paint it. He told me if I found a place that he'd be willing to paint on it. But finding a place is insanely difficult because this this incident is riddled in controversy and politics. Vanessa wants something strangers can stumble upon and get to know David. Something that David's mom can have. Just an image to what his future could have been, knowing that he loved football, (laughs) he loved people, he loved smiling, he loved the rapper future. If there are so many things, maybe in the mural he could be right next to his favorite rapper. Maybe it's an NFL thing. But as long as she sees something other than the reality of it, because that's just a single-minded sadness. At first glance, here's what makes Vanessa different. She wears a flannel hunter cap year-round. She longboards around town. She wears a baggy navy t-shirt most of the time. And... I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I don't even have a cell phone. And now I'm like, well, I have no social network, nobody to, to put this out there to. So that has been something. And this thing is of the utmost urgency because my aunt is afraid that people will forget her son. And I do not want them to forget. All right, well, you want to start where you stopped? Okay. There is no satisfaction to be gained in describing to you how David, his mother, Kitty Sully, myself, and our immediate family have been wrong. No child, in fact, no human, should have their whole life summarized as being a mere casualty in the evening news and nothing more. When I heard of Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, it was in this way. My aunt's life with David seemed a world away from those tragedies. When people speak of the American dream, to her that did not mean a nice house in a good neighborhood or wealth or status. It was David. He would be the promise of this country fulfilled in its truest form. July 2016. Vanessa tells me she'd been walking around downtown, spotting blank walls and calling the businesses that owned them. By her estimate, she'd talked to 40 people. Many politely said they'd call back. They never did. I decide to go out with her one day. I meet Vanessa and her friend Peter Belisario near the Capitol. Near 9th in Congress, Vanessa spots a light blue wall overlooking a parking lot. Something like that. Yeah. Like that. That's what we're looking for. We walk closer. Vanessa imagines David's face on the wall. I feel like he'd be in the middle somewhere. And maybe around him the things he liked. Like his dog? Yeah, like his dog, Sasha. Or his favorite rapper. Or his favorite food. What was his favorite food? He liked hot Cheetos. That, I know, <laughs> I know. That's awesome. Well, he was young, so he could eat hot Cheetos and then like essentially just burns it off because he's a child. I feel like I should ask who owns this yeah. and totally let's see if we can figure it out. We walk into the building. The man at the front desk tells us we should talk to someone on the sixth floor. We walk into an office. A man in a suit greets us. Vanessa starts describing her idea for a mural on the light blue wall outside. I commissioned an artist to paint a mural of uh-huh. my cousin who was killed on February eighth oh, by that. the police 
officer. Uh-huh. And we saw the blue The man tells her politely to talk to the head of the local homeowners association. We get a name and leave. The rest of the afternoon is a lot like this. Confused faces, hard to contact building owners. After two hours and lots of sweat, we get back in the car. We blast the air conditioning. I asked Vanessa if the fact that the officer who shot David was also black complicates things. The tape's not great, but Vanessa says no. Freeman, she says, was part of an institution struggling with race. That affected how he saw David on the day he shot him. We talk about the black men killed by cops before David. There's a disregard. There is, there seems to be a point where people don't feel like African Americans are human, like they're less human, subhuman. Maybe it's because they've been compared to apes for the majority of the time, maybe because of the whole public lynching. I, I don't know where it starts. But I know when it does finish, it's with a young African-American kid, usually male, losing their life. There's just so much I, I want to do about it and then so little I can do. I feel like if I was a person of status walking into these places for this mural, then we could get it done in no time. What does that mean? If I pulled up in, what's a, what's a fancy car? I don't even know cars. Um, a Porsche? If I pulled up in a Porsche and I was all diamond out and maybe I had a blazer of Howard suit <laughs> and like an entourage and I was like, I'm going to paint on your wall. Not even ask. Just, <laughs> I'm going to paint on your wall. <laughs> They'd be like, yes, yes, ma'am. And maybe if they were going to say no at first, one of my entourage members would be like, she's going to paint on your wall. And then you're like, oh, okay, okay. And then that would be it. This is just my fantasy. It's a, it's a fantasy you can cut out. <laughs> she doesn't know right now that a mural of David won't get done. So I would like a promise from you. For one to be righteous requires a commitment to righteousness. Make use of the resources that you already have a bit available, the ones that were devised for this purpose but have a lack of funding assigned power or exposure to the public. October 2016. Vanessa begins pitching something else, police reform. She sits down with Margaret Moore, a former Travis County commissioner. In a month, Moore will be elected the new district attorney. Really think we should start with you telling us what it is that you want to talk about. We meet in City Council Member Greg Kassar's office. We sit at a round table. Vanessa talks about the grand jury process. Three months after David's death, a grand jury refused to indict Freeman. The proceedings are secretive. Only certain information is permitted by state law to be released to the public. It does have that stigma over it, that there is a lot of bias when it comes to it because it's such a secretive process. And I mean, it's not to change the process, but if there's a way to ensure that there's less questions when a decision is made. It's done the same way in Austin that it is done in every county in the state of Texas because it's governed by state law. 
Moore says if Vanessa really wants change, she should start with the police contract. It's an agreement between the local union and the city of Austin. It governs pay, discipline, and oversight. If she wants other change, like modifying how the grand jury process works, Vanessa would have to reach out to state lawmakers. I think there are many things that are well worth discussing, but I do think it comes down to legislative action for the kinds of change you're talking about. And as we know, the legislature of Texas does not exactly, is not exactly the city council of Austin. They talk for nearly an hour. Over the next few months, Vanessa keeps talking. She writes nearly 50 pages of proposed policy changes. She sits down with the office of the police monitor. She writes a letter to Hillary Clinton. She talks with staffers in Senator Kirk Watson's office. They tell her to talk to another senator, someone who works on criminal justice reform. They'd be better suited to handle her request, they say. Vanessa feels like she's getting the brush off, so she takes a break. Vanessa? Uh-huh. December 2016. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. The city of Austin announces that former APD officer Jeffrey Freeman has agreed not to contest his firing. In exchange, the city pays Freeman $35,000. Part of that deal also includes that he can never work as an Austin police officer. What's your reaction to the parts of those of that deal? Well, I know it's a bit jaded, but in light of 2016, I didn't expect anything better. So would you have rather this go to arbitration? I would have rather him got no money, but I know it's not possible. This is just in my wildest dreams. Vanessa's a practical person, but now that becomes resignation. At this point, there's no mural and her talking with politicians about police reform has gone nowhere. People keep asking me what I want for Christmas. It would be to talk to Officer Freeman. Really? Yeah. Do you think you would be able to communicate what you want to say to him if you saw him? Yes, I'd be. It's something I've practiced over and over. I've written down so many times. What would you say? What might that sound like? I just... There's so many things. It's like, are you able to sleep at night? Do you think about him as much as I do? As much as I know his mom does. And I mean, does he realize like he was the last person to see David alive and he had only known him for that instant and like just how much that means? I know my voice is crying. I don't understand why a complete stranger was just able to share the last moments of David's life with him. I don't think he knows how. I mean, it sounds terrible, just how lucky he is, because nobody got to see David past that point. I want to ask him if he said anything, if he looked like he was in pain. Did he realize that he made a mistake? Did he realize that he did something he could never take back? Was he sorry for it? also want to tell him to forgive himself because if it's this bad for me I can't imagine what it's like for him even if he is like the worst of the worst maybe I don't know I figure it's still got to sting somewhere 
reached out to former officer Freeman's lawyers. I left my number with a woman who started a GoFundMe page for him and his family. I sent him a note through the police union. I mailed a letter to his house. He did not respond to request to talk. We have all been hurt far greater by the aftermath. Life does not go on for us. The apathy and complacency surrounding us is our greatest burden, and as long as it continues, we cannot. March 2017. David's mom settles with the city for $3.3 million. It's been a year since David was killed. I meet with Vanessa. We sit on a maroon couch in her parents' living room in North Austin. Do you think you're in a different phase of grieving now? Or it's just all at once? I think just in a different phase. I'm tired. I guess like having the realization that the person's not coming back sinking. I guess if I didn't know him that well and if I didn't see him that much, then I wouldn't have to take him out of so many memories. Then I think it would be a lot easier. I asked Vanessa if big change, like at the institutional level, is possible after a death like David's. I mean, do you, I, do you think it's possible? I don't think it is for real reform to happen, civil rights. Because people say change takes a long time, but how many years do you need to realize that minorities are human beings? I mean, you have a whole race class of people, Caucasians, white people, afraid to become minorities. But why is that? Is it because you treat your minorities poorly? I hate when people tell me it's a slow process. I mean, protecting minorities' lives should not be a slow process. It's like telling somebody to put out a fire in their house slower. April 2017. City council members hold a public hearing on the new contract between the city and the police union. Vanessa addresses a letter to council members. But last minute, she decides she can't stand up in front of the audience at City Hall and read it. A friend of council member Kassars agrees to read it for her. To the members of this council and all that are present, my name is Vanessa and I am the cousin of David Joseph. Last year on February 8th, 2016, my cousin David was shot to death. When she finishes, the people in council chambers clap, which if you've ever watched a city council meeting is unusual. Affected by such tragedy or are simply you are simply concerned and willing to take on such an arduous task as this. I hope you will always remember that human life is the center of this struggle. There is always someone worth protecting. Fear of failure cannot overcome the need for action. I may have lost a family member, a friend, but I am still willing to face each morning despite every inclination not to. I hope you will approach your deliberations here today with the same determination. Thank you for allowing me the chance to be heard. Sincerely, Vanessa Vissera. P.S. The story's not done. December 2017. I go to Vanessa's house one last time. Her mother's friends are chatting in the living room. We sit in Vanessa's bedroom. It looks like she's either moving in or moving out. Boxes of papers and kitchen appliances crowd the floor. Nothing's been hung on the walls. His death still affects me the same way it did when it initially happened. Any loud sound sounds like a gunshot. Any African-American youth looks like David. Any 
adult African-American looks like, what David could have looked like if he was not stripped of the opportunity to grow up. I asked the question I've been nervous to ask. Are you afraid that David will be forgotten? I believe he's already been forgotten. That's why it's so hard doing the last part of this, because it feels like the end. You don't want this to be the last conversation? No, I want there to be so many conversations about David. I don't want it to be just out of convenience when somebody's trying to prove a point or when they're on the losing end of an argument and they're like... Police won't reform. What about David Joseph? In the last year, I've heard David's name brought up at rallies, political events, and during the recent discussion over the new police contract. Last week, the city council rejected that contract. It's the first time they've ever done so. More than 200 people testified, including David's brother. One woman who spoke wore a shirt with David's face on it. Above it read, Remember David Joseph. Six months after David died, Vanessa got her first cell phone. She still doesn't have Facebook or Instagram or go out much, but she says talking about David with strangers, however uncomfortable it is, helps. I feel like I got to say all of the things David couldn't. It's not like we can give him his voice back. But we can speak for him because he can't anymore. Because watching that dash cam video, he said nothing. Even when he died, there wasn't a sound from him. All you could hear was Officer Freeman. Yeah, I wanted to give his voice back to him. As we talk, wind chimes on Vanessa's back porch keep sounding. When we finish, I put my recorder to the window to grab noise of the wind chimes. Nothing. For minutes. We can even hear the wind blowing. Oh, wow. That is so weird. What? They've been chiming this whole time. I pull back the blinds to get my recorder closer to the window. My mom and other Haitians... When things happen, when weird things like that happen, they're like, oh, it's David. That's just, I don't know, that's just how they are. Because when you want to hear it the most, it stops. They'd be like, it's because David doesn't want you to hear him. That was Give His Voice Back to Him, produced and reported by Audrey McGlinchey for KUT in Austin. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Juan Pablo Ramirez-Franco is our production intern. 
The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world, and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. ReSound is powered by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform used by creative teams at more than 80,000 companies worldwide to manage their work their way. Learn more at Airtable.com slash Third Coast. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough.